and welcome to Byline Radio. This is what the papers don't say with me, Adrian Goldberg. Today, 800 British workers sacked by P&O ferries while their French counterparts keep their jobs. The kind of Brexit bonus Farage and co. didn't tell us about. We're going to be talking about Egveni Lebvedev and why the story of his links to Boris Johnson have taken a decade to emerge into the mainstream and Child Q, the really disturbing story of a black schoolgirl strip-searched and even forced to remove her tampon by the police. What does that tell us about the reality of race in the UK today? As always, we want you to join in as well. If you've got a contribution to make to the debate or if our discussion prompts a question that you want answered, just ask for a microphone if you're listening live on Byline Radio. That'll be in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen, and we'll try and get as many people on as we can between now and one o'clock. Before we get cracking, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio, which you're listening to now, is part of the Byline Times empire, and we are funded by ordinary people like you, not by oligarchs or by wealthy proprietors. None of that in the background, just ordinary people putting their hard-earned cash in to honest journalism. So to support us, please take out a subscription to Byline Times. You'll get a great monthly newspaper, the Byline Times. You'll also be supporting Byline TV, the Byline Times podcast, where this show is rebroadcast and where you might also be listening to it. And as well as Byline Radio, you'll also help support our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. And that's where you'll find details of how to subscribe or take out a membership. That's at bylinetimes.com. Well, our thoughts go out today to the 800 workers who've fallen victim to a mass sacking by P&O ferries. They were replaced by cheaper staff, many of them from overseas. Aside from the appalling human cost of these dismissals and the callous way in which they were carried out via video message, there are numerous disturbing strands to this story. Firstly, the apparent link to Brexit. Brexit which, remember, was supported by the RMT union, which represents many seafarers. The fact that Britain has left the EU is being seen by some commentators as a key feature in this story, with the suggestion that employment protection is weaker here than on the other side of the channel, where French workers have kept their jobs. P&O's parent company, the Dubai-owned DP World, has promised generous redundancy terms and says it has lost £100 million in each of the last two years. But that didn't stop them sponsoring the European Golf Tour for 147 million quid. And it remains to be seen if their mass dismissals, in some cases enforced by handcuffed trained security guards wearing balaclavas, is legal. MPs of all political stripes have been quick to condemn PNO, but the government's Freeport initiative coming down the line, promises more deregulation. And last year, Conservative MPs talked out new laws designed to end the practice of fire and rehire, which sees workers dismissed and then re-engaged with less favourable pay or conditions. As I say, we're keen to get your contributions to this. Maybe you're at the protest today in Liverpool, one of the ports that is affected. Maybe you are a P&O worker. Maybe you've been subjected to fire and hire yourself. Maybe you can see the merits in P&O's case. In any event, we'd love to hear from you. Just tap the microphone on the bottom left of your screen if you're listening live on Byline Radio and we'll try and get you on. In the meantime, let's get more from Adam Bienkoff. Adam is the Byline Times political editor and chief political correspondent. Adam, hello and welcome to Byline Radio. Hello, Adrian. Great to speak to you, Adam. And well, as I say, there are so many strands to this story, aren't there? Obviously, there is the human cost, and that will be featured in in much of the mainstream media. And I'm not meaning to downplay that in any way, shape, or form. But we also have this kind of this Brexit dimension to the story. Yes, well, that's right. I mean, I I think I don't think you can clearly say that this is solely to do with Brexit, or that this has only happened because of Brexit, but it certainly is the case that employment law in the UK has been, employment rights in the UK have been allowed to stagnate over a number of years, successive governments that haven't been protected. And we do know that that when Brexit was pushed through by the government, that we were promised that this would enable us to actually strengthen our employment rights in the UK. 
and to increase wages and increase opportunities for British people. Uh, Boris Johnson said in his Conservative conference speech just last year that it would allow us to have a high-wage, high-skill economy. The Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Simon Clark, also said that there is no going back from the fact that we have got to put an end to the reliance on cheap foreign labour, which is exactly why people voted to leave the EU. And of course, now we see that that's a completely dishonest position. And we now can see quite clearly with this current scandal that Brexit has not led to a higher wage, higher skill economy. It hasn't led to increased protections for workers, and it hasn't stopped reliance on cheaper foreign labour. Indeed, the the 800 members of uh, British staff who have been let go this week, um, we understand they're going to be replaced largely, if not uh, almost entirely, by uh, labour from the EU and uh, elsewhere. So people, uh, people will point out that the P&O workers on the other side of the channel, the French workers, who of yes. course are protected by EU regulations, haven't lost their jobs. Now, as you say, it may just be, it may be simplistic to say that the UK workers, because we're out of the European Union, don't have that protection, and the French workers do have that protection because, of course, they're still in the EU. But nevertheless, there is a striking difference between one group of workers here in the UK and another group of workers in France. Yes, I mean, it does appear to be the case. I mean, it is somewhat unclear exactly what percentage of workers uh, actually on the boats came from France and elsewhere and what percentage were in, in the UK. It's also, it's also unclear exactly what law applies. Um, the, the one suggestion is that the, part of the reason why P&A may, may be doing this is, is they're relying on maritime law rather than UK law in, in some aspects. And actually, it appears that the government are quite confused about this. Uh, ministers asked this morning, couldn't give a clear answer on whether or not uh, any employment law had been broken. Downing Street this morning similarly saying that they're looking into the matter they think there's a couple of areas where they believe the law might have been broken, uh, particularly on giving notice um, under UK employment law. They have to give ministers 45 days notice before doing the, the before going into insolvency or mass redundancies, and employees themselves have to be consulted at given 30 to 45 days notice. Of course, that wasn't given. Um, Down Street said yesterday that they weren't aware of it at all before it was announced. That doesn't seem to be true. Actually, we now know that the Department of Transport were informed the day before. Um, of course, the day before is not 45 days before. So that possibly could leave the door open for some legal action by the government. There's certainly going to be a lot of political pressure on the government to do something about this, um, particularly given the fact that P&O has benefited a lot from government help over the last couple of years. Um, they received £150 million in in, in a furlough money from the government um, and there's going to be pressure to pay back but of course we know that the the furlough money was largely given with no strings attached I think I don't think it's very likely that we'll see much of that money or any of that money really coming back to us well indeed no I mean if, if the money's given with no strings attached it seems yes. to me it's very little the government can do but there is also isn't there the, the criticism that will be leveled at at ministers and MPs who rail against p and o here that really they are looking both ways at once. They want these jobs. Mm. They say they want this high-wage, high-skilled economy. At the same time, when last autumn, moves were brought in in Parliament to try and restrict fire and rehire, which has become an increasingly common practice amongst employers, Yes, MPs under pressure from the government, under pressure from the whips, talked it out and they said that they would prefer guidance for employers rather than exactly. laws well guidance has no legal power does it well this is, i mean this is the difference between rhetoric and actual substance of what the government is doing so the rhetoric is that brexit is going to give us uh, a high wage economy and it's going to free us up and allow us to have stronger rights for british workers the reality is quite different and when actually uh, the Labour MP Barry Gardner brought forward his private members' bill last year to actually strengthen UK the work the rights of UK workers. Uh, the government talked it out, um, and you know it's it's the same with the the government. They say one of the big benefits of Brexit is to uh, these new free ports that they're they're bringing in. Well, one of these free ports, the London Gateway Port, is actually owned by the the company which owns P and O, um, which has now sacked eight hundred workers. And, of course, it's worth saying that that same company, a, a Dubai-based um, property fund, which 
Of course, Johnson visited the UAE, UAE this week. Um, they paid out. Yes, that they say that they, the the business is losing 100 million, but they paid out 270 million pounds worth of dividends to shareholders uh, over the course of the pandemic. So there, there is a big gap between what the government is saying uh, when it comes to what Brexit can achieve and what they're willing to do to protect British workers and actually the reality of what they're, they're doing. And one of the advantages of these so-called free ports, I know some people have been questioning the language around this, saying that officially they are charter cities, but I've been looking at some of the government mm-hmm. documentation around this, and the government do refer to them in official documents as free ports. And we had pre- free ports previously exactly. in the UK, going back to the recession of the 1980s. And the, the whole idea is that, is that companies can operate within the free ports in a a low-tax, low-tariff area, kind of effectively hived off from the rest of the UK's regulation, and that that deregulation, which presumably also extends to workers' rights or possibly extends yeah. to workers' rights, is one of the things that makes Freeports attractive to employers. So you can't, on the one hand, it seems to me, reasonably say we want to protect workers' rights and get into a huff and a puff about this horrible job dismissal and then say... We want to introduce more deregulation through the well, I mean, boards. I mean, this is the logic of of Brexit. I mean, and where the rhetoric does differ from the substance is that there there is no purpose. I mean, the, Brexit is a, is essentially you're sort of placing sanctions on your own country, and that you're sort of making it harder to trade with your neighbours. The only kind of logical justification for going through it, from the government's perspective, is to make it easier to deregulate uh, industry. And to, to sort of essentially turn the UK into sort of Singapore on, on Thames and relax employment rights, to relax uh, regulations on, on food standards, et cetera, et cetera. That's the only and, – and by that logic, that the, the, the overall economy would grow faster. That, that's logic. That's the only kind of logical justification for doing it. Um, but at the same time as doing that, the rhetoric is completely the opposite. No, we're not going to relax regulations. We're, not, we're going to protect workers. We're going to make this a higher wage um, uh, economy, but of course we know that if you relax uh, employment regulation, what happens is that wages tend to be suppressed, and that's what's happened in this case. It's very easy for P and O to sack these workers. There's some questions over the legality of it, but they they've been able to do it, and they probably they, their lawyers have probably probably believe that they are able to do it, and there, there may be some they may have to go through the tribunal process and have to pay out compensation, but they believe it's worth that overall in terms of the amount of money that they've saved. And the, the reality is the government aren't like, I mean, th- this may change because of this scandal. They may be under pressure to bring in some new legislation to protect workers. But when it actually came to the crunch last year and they had the opportunity to increase regulations and increase protections on for workers, they they bought at the prospect and didn't do so. Yeah, well, indeed. And uh, it's hard to see philosophically where the Johnson-led Conservative Party would want to introduce greater worker protection. As I say, the logic of the Freeport and Rishi Sunak Mm -hmm. has hymned this really, hasn't he, is that we'll have less regulation. I mean, the idea that you can can talk out the end of fire and rehire, the idea that you can embrace deregulation, the Freeport, and then say – this is terrible, what's happened to these workers. I say it's got to strike any independent observer as pure crocodile tears. And and this is also the sort of, ideologically, this is what the Conservative Party has been committed to for decades, is to reduce regulations and reduce protections for workers. I mean, they wouldn't frame it in that way, but that's that's logic of of what, I mean, uh, several members of the Cabinet wrote, famously wrote, a uh, pamphlet about all of this called Britannia Unchained, which set out, you know, that the British workers, in their words, were the laziest in the world, and and the the economy needed to be radically deregulated in order to make it more productive. Um, from their perspective, that would lead to big uh, to the economy growing faster and, and bigger profits for for companies. But the the flip side of that is less protections for workers, um, and more likely that things that we've seen this week with PNO are more like, going to be more likely to happen. Yeah, one or two people pulling out an article from 2017 featuring, Mm. uh, I think he was then the International Trade Secretary, Liam Fox, and one of the key supporters on the Tory right of Brexit, 
saying it, it's it's ridiculous to think that Brexit is about anything other than being more deregulated. Yes. Saying his whole thing was that the employment cycle and the industrial cycle, the economic cycle is just that it is cyclical so that when things are on a downturn bosses are going to want to let workers go and that we should be making it easier for that to happen so again one of these things and we're going to come to the lebedev thing very shortly with yes. you, which i know is your specialist subject but yeah one of these things that's happening in plain sight nigel farage on twitter today complaining about the 800 job losses and saying brexit was meant to mean uh, higher pay and more jobs for British workers. Well, in, in what universe mm. was this not going to happen? Because if Britain seeks to gain a competitive advantage against its neighbouring European countries, how can it do that? Well, the one obvious and simple way you can do that is by having weaker employment laws, which make it easier to fire and ultimately perhaps rehire on lower pay workers or maybe yeah. get those workers in as in this case by exploiting loopholes even though these are many gonna many of the workers are going to be overseas workers you can exploit loopholes in maritime law and seafaring law to bring in workers from overseas but this was going to happen yes and of course nigel farage said uh, prior to brexit you know if this all turns out to be a disaster for british people then then I'll, I'll be off. But I think I think you know you you do. This is where you have to sort of pay attention to not to what um, the government and Conservative MPs are saying about this in terms of rhetoric. I mean, we've had lots of outrage in the last twenty four hours about this. Conservative MPs saying this is and the government ministers saying this is unacceptable. Well, it's very easy to say something is unacceptable. But why aren't you? Why are you going to accept it? And when we've asked Downing Street in the last 24 hours, what are you actually going to do about this? You get very little in terms of a response. Um, we were told this morning uh, by Boris Johnson's spokesman that they're looking into legal means, legal addresses. Um, they're considering they need to find out more about what's happened. Um, they're all, all they're things that are under review. But actually, in terms of concrete action, yes, it, and it's only been yeah, as, hours. as you were saying that, Adam. I'm thinking Downing Street might as well just put out a press release saying yada yada yada. Quite yes, <laughs> yeah, and you know, uh, and this isn't the the. This is obviously a particularly egregious example of the higher and um, fire and higher uh, uh, situation that has continued to grow over recent years. But there's been lots of other cases of this happening in in other industries, probably n not as as glaringly. Obviously, a sort of moral was this case, and so blatant, so many people being fired at once without consultation. But this is a known practice. This, the government has known about this situation for a long time, and as we say, they did talk out uh, an attempt to sort of tackle it. Um, so, so, the things to look out for in the next few days is is what actually you know. It's all very well saying that oh, let's have a review. That's you know, let's look at possible. Uh, legal action we can take against uh, P&O in this instance. What are you actually doing to change the system that allowed this to happen in the first place? And so mm -hmm. far, we haven't really seen much. We haven't seen anything at all to, that would actually tackle this. Just to remind you, you're listening to Byline Radio. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and I'm joined today by Adam Bienkoff. Adam is the Byline Times political editor and chief political correspondent. If you think there's something missing in our explanation of this, by the way, if you think we're being unfair to the government, by all means, do join in. If you're listening live on Byline Radio rather than to the rebroadcast on the Byline Times podcast, there is a little microphone icon in the bottom left of your screen. At least if you're on your phone, there is. And if you tap on that and uh, I give you permission, you can join in our conversation. So we're keen to get as many voices and as many different perspectives on this as possible. Maybe you've been directly affected by this situation at P&O or by something similar as well. Or maybe you think we're being unfair to the government. Either way, we'd love to hear from you here on Byline Radio. And just a reminder that we're part of the Byline Times empire, for want of a better word. You can support the Byline Times by taking out a subscription or a membership. A subscription starts at as little as £39 a year. You get a brilliant monthly newspaper, the Byline Times. You also help support Byline Radio, the Byline Times podcast, Byline TV as well, and our news breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's where you will find 
details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Now, Adam, you've played a, a key role in exposing the long-standing relationship between Boris Johnson and the newspaper proprietor Egveni Lebvedev. Son of a KGB agent, of course, though we shouldn't yeah. judge people on their parents. Uh, a peer of the realm, Baron Lebvedev of Hampton in the London borough of Richmond-on-Thames <laughs> and of Siberia in the yeah. Russian Federation, to give him his full title. <laughs> he, he had asked for, for Moscow to be his title, but that was denied by the Kremlin, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> no, despite initial warnings anyway from the security services that the could be concerns about him and you followed this story in all of its intricacies and why yeah. do you think the Lebedev story which has kind of gone mainstream in the last week or so and which I know you featured on Radio 4's media show talking about why has it taken so long to leak maybe from the pages of the Byline Times mm. into the mainstream media? Well I mean, I've been covering this story for um, around 10 years now um, I, f I first when I was covering City Hall um, I noticed in the transparency declarations that there was this strange declaration that Johnson had been gifted a holiday to Italy on behalf of Evgeny Lebedev, who at that point um, had only been in charge of the Evening Standard and, and the Independent for a, for a couple of years. He, he bought both papers for a pound each. Um, and it didn't really get a lot of pickup at the time even when it became clear that this was becoming a sort of annual um, trip that Johnson was taking to Italy to stay with him. I thought it was a sort of fascinating story. And and, um, and it, lots more details came out gradually over the years. Um, we later found out that he had attended one of these parties, one of Lebedev's parties in Italy in 2018 when he was foreign secretary. And he has ditched his security team in order to, to attend there. Um, we know that his uh, Lebedev's father, the former KGB agent Alexander Lebedev, attended some of these parties, um, and it's a it's a it's a fascinating story. And you'd think from the outside, from the outside, you'd think that there'd be a lot more. It's kind of perfect for the newspapers. You think there'd be a huge amount of coverage of it, involving MI5 and MI6, involving celebrities, royalty, uh, in fact. Um, involving the Prime Minister turning up drunk and, uh, to uh, Italian airport, being spotted by other passengers. There's all kind of sort of fascinating details to this story. You'd think it'd, it'd be sort of perfect tabloid fare, really, and that there'd be a huge amount of coverage um, over the years. You'd get every, every new development would be covered extensively. And that just hasn't been the case. And you've got to wonder why that is, really. Um, I mean, I think part of it may be there is a sort of nervousness um, among journalists about covering wealthy Russians in the UK for perhaps obvious reasons. Certain oligarchs um, have been do have a tendency to use their immense wealth to clamp down on criticism and scrutiny of their activities using UK libel courts. Of course, it's worth saying that Boris Johnson has encouraged that when he was mayor of London. He actually uh, gave a speech saying that he would like more Russians to come over and use our, our courts. So I think that's that's possibly part of it. Another part of it is, of course, he is a big employer of journalists himself. Uh, he owns the Evening Standard and the Independent. He directly employs a lot of journalists. And a lot of other journalists have either worked for those papers or would like to work for them in future. So I think that, that may explain some of the reluctance to talk about this. Also, he's he's a very connected guy. He has a lot of friends in power, including the Prime Minister, it has to be said. Um, all of these factors, I think, together have kind of doled the coverage um, beyond what they, they, you know, it really deserves, I believe. Yeah. Uh, when we were talking about this uh, a couple of days ago on Byline Radio and on the Byline Times podcast, I drew attention to a very spirited defence of himself by Igveni Lebvedev about a week ago mm. in the Evening Standard. And, you know, he made the point that he's British. You shouldn't just judge him by his foreign sounding name, that he's been a great support, supporter of charitable causes in the UK and so on. So I suppose it does beg the question, notwithstanding the mystery, perhaps, which you've done something to explain of why 
the story hasn't attracted greater attention over the years. I suppose the bigger question then is, why does this matter? Can we link any nefarious activity to Lebedev, to Johnson, and to their relationship? Well, of course, you know, he, is, he has become a British citizen, and he is not his father, as you, as you rightly say. However, all of, his mummy, uh, all of his money does come from his father, it's worth saying. And yes, he has, within the last week or so, um, put out a couple of statements uh, condemning Putin and his actions in Ukraine. However, it's also worth saying that for the last decade, his line on Russia and Putin has been very different. And when it came in, uh, following the invasion, uh, Putin's invasion of Crimea, uh, in 2014, he was actually uh, defended the actions of the Russian government. And he has written pieces uh, in, in two, November in 2015. He wrote a piece um, saying that the UK should ally itself with, with, with Putin in Syria. Interestingly, a few weeks later, Boris Johnson wrote an incredibly similar piece for The Telegraph, taking a very similar line. He's also sent tweets, uh, sent a tweet at one point suggesting that the Litvinenko um, assassination may have been the fault of MI6. So I think, uh, you know, yes, it's certainly the case that he's he's condemned Putin in the last week or so. I think given his position, it would be untenable for him to do anything else. But I don't think it's it's quite as sort of clear-cut that he's this kind of anglicised Putin opponent um, that, that he, he would like to suggest in the last week. And indeed, some of the letters that I uncovered for Byline Times last week show that he, he actually boasted of his access to the Kremlin and to the Russian government and his ability to raise funds from them. Um, and other reporting has suggested that his father has also boasted of similar connections to the Kremlin. In terms of why this is a, a significant story, yes, of course, we shouldn't uh, focus on people just because of where they're from or just because they're very wealthy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there are a couple of things here. First of all, uh, this money did not come out of uh, fin this. This the money that uh, Alexander Lebedev got. He got from the Russian people. It was essentially stolen. It's the wealth of Russia that he he's stolen from the Russian people. Um, it, it's not. It's not. You know, he didn't. He didn't get it through his his his, his own hard work. Um, and the second second reason it's important is because yes, all newspaper proprietors do try and seek to influence the prime minister. They don't tend to do so uh, after the security services have repeatedly issued warnings about those individuals. And we know from the Sunday Times reporting last week that the concerns were raised right at the start of Johnson's relationship with Lebedev in 2010, that he may be a security risk. And we also know that when Johnson tried and succeeded in forcing through his peerage in 2020, 10 years later, the similar concerns were raised again that he may be a security risk. And I think that's the key point as to why this is a story. Yes, prime ministers often have relationships with newspaper proprietors and there's there's a back and forth of influence, which which I documented uh, in the piece last week uh, with the letters between the, between them. What is different here is that there was clear security warning concerns raised by MI5 and MI6 about Evgeny Lebedev and his father and Johnson's relationship with them. And those appear and this hasn't been denied by Downing Street, these appear to have been um, overturned by the Prime Minister in order to benefit his friend. So that there is a national security issue and there is a kind of cronyism issue of, of Johnson's sort of overturning advice in order to help her personal friend of his. Yeah, and I would refer listeners to Egveni Lebedev's self-defence, as it were, in the Evening Standard. If you just put in Egveni Lebedev, Evening Standard, you'll find that article online. But I'd also refer people to your article at bylinetimes.com, headlined the Johnson Lebedev Letters, because it really does build up in incredible detail the, the kind of close links between the two men. And of course, we have to be mindful, don't we, in a democracy of the influence that people have and the debts perhaps that people owe, the debt that Johnson owes to Lebedev. And as you say, the debt that Lebedev has ultimately to the Russian people who have mm. one way or another funded his purchase of two influential newspapers in this country, the Evening Standard and the Independent. And I suppose it's that for me is where this story gets really grey, but an interesting kind of grey, because 
what does Johnson owe Lebvedev for his backing? Uh, the Independent and the Standard are not the only papers that have backed Johnson, of course, but you would think there is a, a, a sense of gratitude, if nothing else, from Johnson for that backing. But then what is what is Lebedev expecting in return? And, it, 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 and you know, what... Who are the people that he owes allegiance to? And is there any link between him and Vladimir Putin and his, his broader agenda? And uh, as you say, based on the published evidence, there is some suggestion that, for well, whatever reason, Lebedev has been supportive of Putin in the past. And, and we know um, that when it comes to the Russian oligarchs, you, you are either, when it comes to the Russian oligarchs and Putin, you are either with him or you're against him. If you are with him, you're allowed to carry on in your position and your position is protected in some respects by the government. If you are against him, then you're you're in a world of trouble, as we have seen with what's happened to some of the exiled oligarchs, including in, in the UK. Um, so, yes, uh, Alexander Lebedev did clearly have a falling out with Putin at, at some points. Um, but that seems to have changed, as as John Sweeney has written for Byline Times. There seems to have been some sort of rapprochement in in recent years between them. We don't know what you know. We don't know exactly what the terms of that were, but it's it's clearly the case that you know he the Lebedevs are not straightforward Putin critics um, or opponents of Putin. If if they if they were, they wouldn't have been able to maintain their wealth and their position in, in the way that they have done. Yeah, and there's also this situation with Johnson where questions are asked about his lack of interest, his lack of curiosity about possible Russian interference in the EU referendum, for example, drawn mm -hmm. attention to both by the DCMS, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport Select Committee, and then again by the Joint Intelligence and Security Committee of MPs, cross-party committees, both of those, posing questions about possible Russian interference, Johnson has been the least curious minister and then prime minister that you can imagine about possible meddling. And you would think, wouldn't you, that if any foreign country was trying to interfere with British democracy, that would be of interest to the man who now uh, has the keys of the door to Downing Street. Well, I mean, yeah, not a dicky bird. I mean, not only is he, is, is he sort of indifferent to it, he's sort of actively opposed attempts to find out uh, about Russian interference. Of course, the, the Russia report by the intelligence, Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee was prepared well in advance of the last general election. And Johnson actively sought and succeeded in suppressing its publication until long after that election had taken place. And when it did finally emerge, downplayed massively downplayed its findings and sat on it um, for a further year. And it's only now that Putin has invaded uh, Ukraine that we're seeing any attempts to kind of clamp down on Russian interference in the in the as the Intelligence and Security Committee said in the statement this week, the government has sat on this report for two years and done nothing. Why has it taken this for anything to be done at all? And Johnson himself has been not just indifferent in, ter in terms of money in, in Russia, but he's been actively championed uh, Russian oligarchs in the UK. Um, indeed, one article he, he wrote in. I believe it was 2013, he, um, he suggested that the richest people in the UK, including Russian oligarchs, should be given, in his words, automatic knighthoods um, for the amount of money that they brought into the UK. So, you know, it doesn't get more pro-oligarch and pro-Russian welfare than it's been in, in the last 10 years. Indeed not. Adam, great to speak to you. Thank you for joining us. And you can read Adam's great work in the Byline Times. He's the Byline Times political editor and chief political correspondent. Read the best of his articles in the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Read him regularly on our website as well, bylinetimes.com. Thanks for joining us, Adam. I hope we get you back again on Byline Radio soon. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Adrian. There you go. There's uh, Adam Bienkov, as I say, so a terrific writer with real insight to what's going on in the world of politics and at Westminster. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to Byline Radio. You may be listening live now via Twitter Spaces. We're here every weekday 
between noon and one. But don't worry, if you miss us live on Byline Radio via Twitter Spaces, we do try and put out every episode later on via the Byline Times podcast, which is where you might be listening to us as well. But the only way you can join in live is if you're listening to us on Twitter Spaces. But if you want to request uh, uh, the chance to join in, there's a little microphone icon, certainly if you're listening on your phone, down in the bottom left of your phone. And if you tap that, you can request access and we'll try and get as many of you on as we possibly can. Don't forget to support Byline Times and all the work we do. Please take out a subscription to the Byline Times newspaper or even better, a membership. And that will help to support Byline Radio, the podcast, Byline TV and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com, which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Now, I want to talk about a really disturbing and troubling story. It's one that should disturb and trouble any of us, really, if we care about others in society. But it really struck home for me because I'm the dad of three girls, aged 17, 14, and 7. And I think, what if this had happened to my kids? This, of course, is the story of Child Q. Now, Child Q is a black schoolgirl. I reference the colour of her skin because it may indeed be material. She was strip-searched in 2020 by police after being wrongly suspected of carrying cannabis. Apart from the officers, there were no adults in attendance to support her, not her parents. And a safeguarding report has found that since this incident, when she was strip searched, she's changed, according to her family, from a happy-go-lucky girl to a timid recluse who hardly speaks. She now self-harms and now needs therapy. The report concluded that the search was unjustified and that racism was likely to have been a factor. Scotland Yard has said the officer's actions were regrettable and it should never have happened. Let's speak to Albert Kapoor. Albert is the senior policy manager at the think tank, the Runnymede Trust. Hi, Albert. Welcome along. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. No, listen, I know you were only on yesterday, but when, <laughs> when I started to get my head around this story, I thought, who better to kind of talk us through this? It's, a, it's an absolutely shocking story. For people who haven't heard it, Albert, what are the key facts? I suppose, I mean, the real key fact here is that a traumatic search took place uh, in for in a school in Hackney in East London that affected a child uh, who was essentially taken into a room unsafeguarded, unsupported and strip searched by police officers whilst she was on her period. And this was after being reported on uh, by her school teacher who accused her of smelling like cannabis. Honestly, the details alone, just even repeating them now, it's just so utterly heart-wrenching to think that this is possible in a society like this, in a school where people deserve to be protected, to be cared for, and yet a young child receives such dehumanising and racist treatment from the police in this, in this, in this manner. And it's quite chilling. I did an interview for the Byline Times podcast a few weeks ago with a young woman. She was an adult woman, um, Koshka Duff, who was strip searched Mm -hmm. by the same local police force in London. And she waged an eight year campaign to get some kind of acknowledgement of the wrong done to her, her crime in inverted commas was that when a young man was being arrested she handed him a leaflet saying here are your rights and for that and then when the police arrested her she within her rights said i'm not going to give you my name i'm not going to give you my address Mm -hmm. until i can see a solicitor until i can see a lawyer the police ignored that and strip searched her and issued um, a the kind of an apology, but not one in which they acknowledged that they had done wrong. And we've talked a lot on the podcast and on Byline Times, Alba, over the recent months about the, the deeply embedded culture mm-hmm. within the Metropolitan Police of misogyny, of which this could be example, of racism, perhaps, of which this could be an example. Absolutely. I mean, even in the police's response to this, to this 
unbelievably harrowing investigation, which affected, I think it's really it affected a child. Um, even in their response to this, there hasn't been that recognition of institutional racism. What can be a clearer manifestation of racism embedded in the police force than a police officer dehumanizing and degrading a black child in this way? Um, and that is really where it comes sort of clear that this is something the police aren't willing to engage with yet, don't have the language to engage with, but also has a long history behind it. I mean, let's not for, uh, forget the sort of brutal racist conduct of police following the murders of Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman, um, or the way in which black young women uh, who, are, who, have, who, have who have suffered domestic violence feel unable to bring their cases to the police because they simply do not have the trust that they will be taken care of or supported. Um, this is, I mean, there was this research that came out from Sister Space that showed that for the women who um, have been a victim of domestic abuse or assault from African or Caribbean heritage, only about half said that they would ever report their assault to police. Such is the lack of confidence that the police speak for black and ethnic minority communities or that the police act in support of young black women in particular. And I think the other side of this that's just really important as well is that this comes, this, this, uh, this investigation comes as part of a broader and somewhat sinister and disturbing uh, issue with the number of police in schools. So there are over 650 police officers working in British schools today. They're sort of known as safer school officers. Um, and we've seen a number of cases in which they, there has been uh, police involvement in minor incidences in school that have a disproportionate effect on black and ethnic minority pupils and young pupils. Um, and so this, the idea of police contact in schools, it's an increasing reality in our society and something that we should be highly concerned about, given the inevitable disproportionality of outcomes for black and ethnic minority young people and young children in the criminal justice system. Yeah, very often the presence of police officers within a school setting, which is where this search took place, by the way, mm. it didn't happen at a police station. Precisely. It was within a school setting. Very often this is sold as trying to build bridges between the community and perhaps amongst members of communities who've had good reason to mistrust the police, to build bridges between those communities and police officers. Of course, incidents like this, far from building bridges, are more likely to, to burn bridges, quite honestly. And it seems to me that the schools in which officers are situated tend to be schools which, and again, forgive me, correct me if I'm wrong, but tend to be schools which have a, a worse reputation for trouble and violence and so on. Um, they're not in nice middle-class state schools like the ones that my two older daughters attend? I mean, the research that's been done, uh, there was a survey done in Greater Manchester that showed that safer schools officers or police officers in schools are much likely to be placed in schools with higher numbers of black and ethnic minority communities, of, of communities who are black and ethnic minorities, so black and ethnic minority pupils. Um, so already we see in the numbers, it bears out that uh, again, the same disproportionalities are, are repeated when you increase the number of police anywhere and specifically in schools. It is black and ethnic minority communities who are going to feel the brunt of it. Um, and I just I'm, I'm aware that there's sort of much more to discuss on this. But I think it's important to say that yesterday the government published its inclusive Britain uh, plan, which is in essence a sort of action plan in dealing with racism in our society. And I mean, it, it it certainly wasn't uh, in any way enough to root out any institutional racism within the criminal justice system. But even worse than that, it proposed um, more police in school as part of something called the mini police program to build trust in communities. So that that's a program that would involve engaging primary school students with the police at a really early age. So there's there's still more coming out in this vein uh, in terms of more police in schools that we should be really concerned about.
Yeah, and uh, as I say, the the rationale is often that of building bridges amongst mistrustful communities. But if communities feel that they are being disproportionately policed in school as well as on the streets, it's it's only going to have the opposite effect. Absolutely, and the and it, it it cannot belong in schools. I mean, this it's just unbelievable that we are in a place in our society where safer schools officers exist in this way and where these disproportionalities are not only playing out in the streets or the cities in which black and ethnic minority people live in, but also in the schools that they go to. Another phenomenon of this is the, or another aspect of this phenomenon rather, is is what people describe as the adultification mm-hmm. of black children, where black boys and black girls are seen to be older or treated like adults in a way that white children are not. Absolutely. I think this is something that has been a real part of the conversation, this adultification bias, uh, where in essence, uh, black children in particular are not given the same treatment as their white counterparts. Um, And we only have to read the way in which child Q was affected to understand what this bias really does. You know, she she speaks about having experienced self-harm, needing to go to therapy, becoming going her, her family talk about how she went from a happy-go-lucky girl to a timid recluse as a result of this incident. It's so profound. And it's so profound also because she was a child. And the way in which uh, these, this alt- adultification bias feeds into how police engage with young black people is something that we urgently need to be discussing openly in a way that the police really owns and understands. Really good to speak to Albert. Thank you. Thank you. By all means, stay on if you want to. If you want to join in a bit later, it'd be great to have you. If not, though, thank you either way. Thank you. Powerful contribution. That's Albert Kapoor, who is Senior Policy Manager at the Runnymede Trust. Let's get comments now from Ava Vidal. Ava is a comedian, a journalist, an activist. Ava, hello. Welcome to Byline Radio. How are you? Okay, thank you. Yeah. Firstly, Ava, I mean, just a, a reaction, really from your point of view, to what happened to Child Q? I don't even know what to say. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious as a black mother how I would feel. Um, You know, it's just something that we're very, very sick and tired of. And in the black community, I haven't seen a reaction like this for a long, long time where everybody is angry, everybody is pulling together. We are sick and tired of it. The adultification of our children doesn't start sort of as teenagers, it starts in nursery schools. There's lots of people doing work around it. I mean, it's all, it has its roots in slavery, the legacy from slavery that people think we shouldn't still be speaking about, uh, where black children, were well, obviously not black children, they were put, put to work in fields as young as two and three. Um, you know, I, I don't know what else to say, really. It's just very heartbreaking. It's very disturbing. And I would say misogynoir, which is not just misogyny, it's a specific kind of misogyny that affects black girls and black women is at play here. Um, not regarded as female enough, not regarded, you know, as as young at all. It's It's really sad. As you describe all that, Ava, my heart really sinks. I feel sad. And I feel angry, and I think I recognise, even as a middle-aged white guy, I think I recognise what you're saying. And we've spoken to Alba about the placement of police officers, often with the rationale that it will help to build bridges with different communities within schools, although as uh, Alba says, very often they're disproportionate numbers of schools where there are large numbers of black and minority ethnic pupils is this something we need to look at do we need to get rid of the police from our school system a hundred percent there's actually um i'll retweet it onto my page today there's an organization that's looking into do that doing that you just don't um build relationships in schools you don't need to be in a school to build a relationship with the community you need to stop over policing stop criminalizing our children and stop targeting us. Um, I worked, um, I'm a patron of a charity called Stop and Search Legal Project, 
where we would go into schools and we would speak to young kids. Um, and we would speak to kids maybe about nine, ten. These are like majority kids say to them, do you think stop and search is a good idea? About 90% of them would say yes. When you get to 14, 15, about 99% of them say no. And the reason it changes in those five years is because it's at that point they've had that first contact with the police. And it's sad. It's sad. I remember with my own son, he's now, you know, he's in university. He's a big boy. Um, but as he was growing up, it's it's the heartbreak on their face. I mean, eight, nine, they called him cute. But by the time he got to 10, he was considered to be a threat. You know, people would act scared of him. They would jump when he was around. And, you know, I remember being at the cash point with him and some guy, like my son was just playing around. He was literally like nine, 10. And this guy was like, what's he doing? What's he doing? I mean, he's a kid. He's waiting with me in the queue. What are you talking about? And it's just, it's just, an, it's horrible. And stop and search for anybody who's listening who wants to say, oh, why, you sh you know, if you're not carrying anything, you shouldn't mind. It's just a stop. And it's not that. Often stop and searches, even the public ones on the street, are um, humiliating. Uh, they are often very violent. They are also often accompanied by uh, racial abuse as well and, you know, provocation. So, that's not what we're objecting to. And like with Child Q, most of these searches turn up nothing. Indeed. I, it's just, you know, it, it, it's heartbreaking testimony that you're bringing to us, Ava, quite honestly. You've talked about the anger amongst the community. Uh, as I understand it, there is going to be, there are going to be protests this weekend at Stoke Newington Police Station. Is that right? Do you want to tell us more about that? Um, the ones I know of are, there's one by Copwatch today, it starts at four. There's another one that starts at five from Stand Up to Racism, so I'm assuming those two will just merge. There's also one on Sunday, um, which is centering black girls, because often when we have these marches, um, we center black men and black boys. So the organizer, to reflect that, has actually... Um, changed it to make sure that people know um, this is centering black girls. And in terms of tackling the systemic issue here, Ava, that you touch on, which is, I guess, embedded... Oh, sorry, can I just add that... that yeah, go on, uh, Ava, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one on Sunday starts at 1pm. Sorry, I was just going through my stuff. No, that's yeah, all right. It's that, calling for that's, dignity that's and education. Police station, yeah, yeah. Yes. And I guess in terms of tackling this, you know, because at some level society has to move forward but i don't want to put words into your mouth but we are talking i guess then about challenging deeply embedded attitudes racist attitudes that go back to the time of slavery and being honest about our past and being honest about how people of color have been treated in western societies and by the uk historically we just need to have an open and honest conversation which so many politicians particularly of the right are keen to close down it's not just the right i mean keir starmer up until this morning last time i checked has said absolutely nothing about child q um angela rayner who's constantly speaking about working class white boys in education has said nothing about child q so the racism is also on the left and i really need to make that clear because it, it often manifests itself in a different way in it almost look like you know look at what we've done for you people almost like we should be grateful for scraps the assumption by labor that we're going to support them no matter what they do and how they ignore our needs um, as well. So, yeah, just to make that clear, I mean, it is deeply embedded in our education system and the way we've been policed constantly throughout um, our, our time in this country. The main bulk of the Caribbean community, which I'm a part of, came over um, in the Windrush, um, on Windrush, you know, where that they call our parents the Windrush generation and we are first generation and now we're seeing a lot of us have got kids who are the second generation and sometimes even you know grandkids who are the third and nothing's really changed rogan production um did a documentary uh, they made a great series of documentaries um 
about black life in Britain. One of them was about the education system. It was called Subnormal. And it was about just how many Caribbean children were wrongly um, called educationally subnormal. They have been taken out of main education and they are put into uh, special schools. They, you know, it's so, it's heartbreaking when you saw them speaking about their lives. One of these guys has grown up to be a man who's just got degree after degree after degree because he's proving, you know, to everyone around him he's not stupid. After that, they began to sort of, um, you know, when our elders really argued against that, fought against that, we set up Saturday schools, um, Caribbean schools. There's places like 100 Black Men of London, Honeybees. We have to, to supplement what the government is doing to show our children that they matter. When they finished doing that to our children, uh, the main thing through the 80s was PRUs, which is people with uh, people referral units, where they would say that we're a discipline problem. Um, there's an activist called Stafford Scott who did a, um, a show called War in a Babylon, and it was about the policing of the black community and how we have, have fought back over it over the years. And, you know, you have people who will come out blatantly and make racist statements. And we're talking about senior police officers, and I can't remember his name, basically saying Jamaican people are an unruly bunch. They can't, you know, they have no discipline. It's in, it's their culture, you know, painting us as wild and loud and angry and all these kind of things. It's just, you know, up to Sky News um, brought an ex-policeman on who's a fan of Tommy Robinson, and he's saying it's because black people... We have no discipline in our homes. We're all single mothers. We're this, we're that. You know, it's it's just constant. We've had examples of, uh, I think it's important to, to centre black women for this because our stories don't often get told, even with our own community. Um, you know, there's Joy Gardner who was killed. She was a Jamaican woman. She was overstaying to go to university. Uh, immigration burst in. They killed her. They choked her out in front of her six-year-old child. She's a beautiful, beautiful young woman, Cherry Gross, who the police took her son's key, let themselves into her house and shot her in her bed. And she spent the rest of her life in a wheelchair. I mean, these things go on and on and on. It's just, it's horrendous. And we're tired. Ava, that's a really, really powerful testimony. I really appreciate your time joining us on Byline Radio today. Thank you so much for that. I'm, I'm moved almost to tears listening to what you're saying. It's shocking and it's true. I just wonder if Albert Kapoor wants to add anything, Albert. I just, I just found that. Can so... I just add quickly? Go on, um, go on, Ava. Please, yeah, sorry. If you yeah. are a white person, you are moved by these stories. Just imagine if these were your children. Um, it's kind of not enough to say, oh, gosh, we don't agree with that. Please, we're asking you to, to put put your feelings into action as well, because it's going to take all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Ava. Thank you. Uh, Albert, did you want to say anything after that? I, I really don't think there's anything to add to that. I think, Ava, you've, you've given such an important you said so many, so many important things about the way in which we th should be thinking about this and how, especially for, for people who, who need to be part of this movement more, it's time to really start that anti-racist work and, and understand the history of what's been happening and how this stems from decades, if not centuries, of, of oppression. Thank you for coming on as well today, Alba. Really appreciate your time. That's Alba Kapoor from the Running Me Trust Really grateful as well to Ava Vidal, comedian, journalist, activist, mum. Really, really powerful stuff. Thank you to everybody who has listened to Byline Radio today. Please spread the word. If you're listening on the Byline Times podcast, please spread the word about the podcast as well. We don't have a marketing budget, so uh, I hope this podcast does go far and wide, and I hope that Ava's message goes far and wide as well. Really grateful to everybody for taking part. Just finally to say before we go, we'll be back again on Monday and every weekday between noon and one with Byline Radio. Just follow us on Twitter spaces at Byline Radio. Or if you can't make that, then do please listen to the podcast at Byline Times podcast. And don't forget to support the work of Byline Times by taking out a subscription or a membership 
Find out more details at bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed, everyone. See you all again on Monday. Good luck, stay safe, and thank you. Ta-da!